Christ is risen. And today we celebrate that. I hope we don't get the wrong impression and think just Easter Sunday we do. I hope we're aware you won't find such a thing as Easter Sunday in the New Testament. You find the first day of every week is a day for celebrating Christ is risen. But today we particularly think about what that means for us. It means his sacrifice was accepted and that gives us confidence. It means his claims were vindicated and that gives us faith in him. It means death has had its sting taken and that gives us hope for the future. But it also means we don't just have a saviour who did some things back then and we can look back then and have hope for what's ahead. It means we have a saviour who's alive now. And that means we can know him now. It means we can have a living relationship with the living Lord. What he did back then doesn't just point us ahead. It makes a difference now. We can know him now. But what's that like? It's all very well saying relationship. You know, as Christians, we talk about relationship with God a lot. But but what do we mean? You know, you have a relationship with Boris Johnson. Every one of us does. He rules. You have to do what he says. You have a relationship with your neighbours and it might be friendly. It might be distant. It might even be difficult. You have a relationship with your family, which presumably is different from the relationships I've just mentioned. In other words, there's all sorts of relationships. What does it mean to have a living relationship with the living Lord? What's it like? Well, we're going to see an example. Peter and the risen Lord. It tells you nowhere near everything. I'm not pretending it tells you everything about a relationship with Jesus. Far from it. Uh, But in an interesting real life story, it tells us some important aspects of knowing Jesus. So would you come again with me, please, to John chapter 21, John's gospel and the last chapter. We're going to go through John chapter 21 and pick out some of the. Things Peter experienced, which should be true of a relationship of Jesus with Jesus today. Here's the first one. I'm getting this from verses one to 14. Relationship with Jesus involves eagerness for him. Relationship with Jesus involves eagerness for him. Now, Peter and co have been fishing all night. They caught nothing. Unknown to them, the risen Lord is on the beach. And this man they see on the beach calls out to them. And when he hears that they haven't caught anything, he says, well, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. And for some reason they do. And they catch this miraculous load of fish and the light bulbs go on. They realise it's the Lord. There he is. And as soon as Peter realises, he wraps his garment, his cloak around him and he jumps off the boat, splash into the water. And swims to the shore. Now, are you surprised that Peter did this? Are you surprised that Peter jumped off the boat into the water to swim to the shore? I presume he had to swim. If you've got a footnote like mine, it tells you that he's about 90 metres out and uh, he's going to have to swim. And he's going to get pretty wet. 
Are you surprised that he did this? I'm going to try to get you working this evening. That's a real question. First, I think that there are reasons to be surprised and reasons to not be surprised. So first of all, reasons to be surprised Peter did this. Why be surprised? Okay, so this follows hot on the heels of that man on the on the on the beach. He has denied him. And the last time there was significant interaction between them, it was Jesus giving him a look when he had just with curses said, I don't know that man. So it's rather surprising that he's swimming towards him. Why else might you be surprised? Think about the other disciples, what they're doing. And then Peter's different. Why does that give you a reason to be surprised? He jumps off the boats. Yes. Okay. so he's got a job. He's a fisherman. Uh, Malcolm said you ought to sort the fish. What's he doing? Leaving them behind. There's a a job to do. Sorting out the fish. Yes. What else are the fishermen going to do as well as sort the fish? As we read on, what do we find? They're going to row back to the shore. (laughs) How much time is he going to save? A couple of minutes. I don't know, but they're going to go back to the shore. They're all going to go and see Jesus. Do you normally jump off boats? Isn't that, shouldn't that be an obvious answer? You don't normally jump off boats into the water with your clothes on and get yourself soaking wet, be very undignified and save about two minutes getting in. It's an odd thing to do. Why else might you be surprised? Who is this man on the shore? Why might you not be jumping in and getting to him quickly? He's the risen Lord. I hear we say it's obvious Peter wants to get to Jesus, but just stop and think. He is a man who has died and risen again. Doesn't that intimidate you? Doesn't that make you think, whoa, maybe Peter remembers actually last time there was a miraculous catch of fish. Do you remember what he said? Once he started to get some idea that this Jesus is not normal, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Hasn't he got far more reason to say that? Who is this man? He's risen from the dead. And who am I? I've denied him three times. Rather surprised he jumps off the boat. What are reasons to be not surprised he jumps off the boat into the water? Okay, so we know a bit about what Peter's like. Yes, he's bold, he's hasty, he is speak before you think, man, isn't he? And here he's jump before you think, man, possibly. He's that sort of character, yeah. Why else might we not be surprised? Yes, so this sort of thing has happened before. And that time before, as I said, Jesus said, uh, no, Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But then he was told, you're going to be a fisher of men. And it's interesting that have the disciples given up on that? And is Jesus here reminding them and calling them back to himself? Surely the big reason to not be surprised is this. He loves his Lord. He's delighted to see him. Here's his friend. He thought that he'd lost. He thought he'd seen him for the last time. 
And in those terrible circumstances where he got that look from Jesus, we don't know quite what the look was, but Peter has denied Jesus and he gets a look from him. And then Jesus goes and dies and he thinks, I've lost him forever. Everything's fallen apart. And now he's alive. And Peter's already had some brief encounters with him. When there was enough for Peter to know his sin wasn't being held against him, but they were very brief encounters. So of course he wants more. Of course he's eager to get to Jesus. Of course he doesn't want to wait for them to sort out the fish. Jump in the water and let's get to him. He's eager to be with Jesus. That's the biggest thing here. He's eager for Jesus. What about you? What about you? Who are you eager to be with. I know a minister in Norfolk called Hugh and his friends thought that he needed a wife. And there was a young woman who was due to arrive in the country from Cyprus. They thought would make a good wife for him. And they arranged for him to go and give her a lift. I'm not sure where to. And as he drove from Norfolk to Heathrow, do you know your geography? He said to himself, I mustn't look too keen. I mustn't look too keen. Um, Don't look too keen. And then he thought to himself, I'm driving from Norfolk to Heathrow and then back again. How can I not look keen? Who are you keen to see? Who are you eager for? If you're not a Christian, I want to recommend Jesus to you. There's no one more worth being eager for than Jesus. We've got a children's song we sometimes sing at Hongdi Bible Club. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. No one more worth being eager for. There's no one with love like him who laid down his life for his enemies. There's no one with power like him. Some people have good intentions. Some people want to help others, but they don't manage to do anything worthwhile about it. Jesus didn't just feel for sinners. No, he came to be their saviour and he took it all the way to death on the cross. He's alive. And he's a person for us to be eager for now. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. No one worth being eager for like him. If you're a Christian, are you still eager for him? Very easy for us to have Jesus as the ticket in. You know, like if you go to one of those theme parks, you've got your ticket that gets you in. Jesus is the ticket in to the Christian life. And once you're in, well... There are other things more interesting. There's controversies and there's issues and there's church politics and there's activities and there's expanding our little empire. No, no, we've got the most wonderful saviour. Easter Sunday. So it tells us amazing things. God became man and died and then he rose again. And when he rose again, was he still human? Yes, he didn't rise to become something different. God became man, human forever. But he was different, wasn't he? No longer subject to the fall. For the first time, there's a man fully, well, for the first time since Genesis 3, there's a man fully free of the effects of the fall. And now he's on the throne. Forever, there's a man who is God. Free of the curse on the throne. How amazing. Fellow Christians, are you eager for him? Richard Dawkins, you know who I mean, don't you? That scientist who rants against Christianity. He's anti-Christianity and he rants against it. 
But I reckon he's more sensible than the Christian who's lukewarm about Jesus. It's more sensible to say Christianity is not true and I'm going to rant against it like Richard Dawkins than to say, I believe in the God man on the throne. But you're more excited by football or films or friends, entertainment, money, career, anything. If you find anything more exciting than him, doesn't fit, does it? Relationship with Jesus involves being eager for him. Here's the second thing. Moving on in John 21. Relationship with Jesus involves him dealing with your sins. This is verses 15 to 17. What's it like to meet with Jesus? Because Jesus has risen. We talk about meeting with Jesus. What's it like? On the 24th of May, 1738, a famous man, John Wesley, founder of Methodism, he went to a meeting in London and there he heard a sermon from Romans, a letter to the Romans. And Jesus met with him and famously he described it as my heart was strangely warmed. Now, that's great. That's highly desirable. But it isn't always what meeting with Jesus is like. What was it like? What did Peter feel? Verse 17. He didn't feel his heart strangely warmed. Desirable, though, that is. What did Peter feel? Verse 17. When Jesus met him. What were his feelings like? Hurt. He felt hurt. Why did he feel hurt? What hurt him? A sort of interrogation. And I could add who interrogated him, but I won't patronise you with these sorts of questions because, you know, it's Jesus. That's funny, isn't it? Jesus hurt him because Jesus probed into his sin. Jesus probed into his sin. Relationship with Jesus involves him dealing with our sin, not leaving them alone. How did Jesus probe into his sin? There are a few answers to this. Let's hear some ideas. How did Jesus probe into Peter's sin? Good. He asked some pointed questions to him. Now, how did those questions probe his sin? Let's hear a bit more. Yes, he asked about his love for him. Now, doesn't that do? There we have it. Verse 15. Do you love me? To ask the question is a hurtful thing, isn't it? A wife surely doesn't ask her husband, do you love me when everything's going brilliantly in the marriage? The wife asks the husband, do you love me when he's really messed up or hurt her when something's gone wrong? To ask the question implies it doesn't look like Peter loves him. That's a probing, hurtful question. Why else? How else does Jesus probe? Go on, Samuel. Very good. By saying the same question over and over again. That just repeats, doesn't it? That says there's a big question mark over whether you really love me. And it wasn't just over and over again. Have a look at verse 17. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. And he's bringing up what they all know. 
Well, I presume the other disciples know it, but certainly Jesus and Peter know it. That three times Peter insisted he didn't know Jesus. That three times he protested he was nothing to do with Jesus. That three times he called down curses on himself if he was anything to do with this Jesus. And three times he's asked, do you love me? And it wounds him. His sin is being raked over. How else does Jesus probe? Have a look at verse 15. The first question in verse 15. The more than these. Yes, more than what? I think it must be more than the other disciples. You know, it is actually possible it is, do you love me more than you're fishing? Why are you back at fishing? But the most likely thing is, do you love me more than the other disciples? Now, why does that probe into him? Because it's, it's a very short time since a Thursday evening when Peter said, even if all the others forsake you and flee, I won't. Oh, that crew, yeah, I can imagine them running off weak lily-livered lot, but not me. No, I'm going to stick with you. In other words, I'm better than them. Peter, Jesus is saying, are you really better than them? Do you really think you're stronger? Do you really think you love me more? Peter, have you been taught to have a more realistic view of yourself? Jesus is probing his sin. By the way, some people say, and I'm glad no one here said it because it put me in a slightly awkward spot to deal gently with your answer. Some people say Jesus changes the word for love to make it weaker as he asks again. Now, it is true he does change the word for love, but the words Jesus used are used so flexibly in the Bible. There isn't a very definite pattern of the first one is the strongest and the last one is the weakest and the middle ones between. Um, a little bit of knowledge of Greek is a dangerous thing. And uh, it's not as simple as that. It's a nice idea, but it's not quite there. The more important thing is he asks him three times. He asks him compared with others and that he asks the question at all. What is the Lord doing? He is dealing gently with a man who, despite his bravado, is, is a very fragile character. Most people who are full of bravado, were really pretty fragile underneath. And so he doesn't scold him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't contradict Peter when Peter says, you know, I love you. His words are careful. He gives Peter a question to awaken his conscience, not an accusation to beat him down. But he's too loving to pretend that nothing's happened. He's too loving for, well, look, he's jumped in the water. He's obviously keen to see me. So let's let bygones be bygones. That wouldn't be the loving approach because they would both know there's been an issue. And Peter would be left wondering, are we just pretending it hasn't happened or has it really been forgiven? Jesus asks gentle questions, but he doesn't leave the subject alone. He is too loving to pretend nothing's gone wrong. But he does make clear he's forgiven Peter. We're being shown how wise and loving Jesus is. Strong enough to face up to difficult issues, gentle enough to do it in a, a way that wins Peter. And I'm telling you that to show you Jesus. 
I'm also telling you that because it's a very good model for us when there's been a problem in relationships. Relationship with Jesus involves him dealing with our sins. Third one, relationship with Jesus involves being given a role in his plans. We're going to stick with verse 15 to 17 for the moment. Relationship with Jesus involves being given a role in his plans. Now, how does Jesus show he's forgiven Peter? In verses 15 to 17, he doesn't actually use the word forgiveness. So how does he show he's forgiven him? By giving him a job to do. Feed my sheep. Yes. By giving him a role. He's got work to do for Christ. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. By the way, there's a parallel here with an incident in the Old Testament. Great chapter in the Old Testament. I wonder if you can think of it. It's Isaiah 6. There's someone, Isaiah, who meets with God. And it made him aware of his sins. And then he's shown that he's forgiven. And then what happens? He's given a job to do, to go and speak God's word to people who don't want to hear. Now, Peter is very similar to this and he's given this role, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Now, try to imagine what might his reaction be? What might his reaction be to being told, now go and feed my lambs? Well, it could be, Lord, don't you know I'm a busy fisherman? Got a lot of work to do. Got a family to take care of. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, Peter's married. Presumably got a family to take care of. Life is busy and I do need a bit of time to myself, please. Is that his reaction? Or is it me have a part in your plans? Me have a role amongst your disciples? Yes, please. Can I really? Me? And which do you think it is? Of course, it doesn't say here. But I'm taking it that it's obvious to us. I hope that it's the second one. Which are you more like, by the way? Now, if you're agreeing with me that it's going to be the second one. Yes, please. Me, really. Why? Why would you expect Peter to be pleased to have a role in Christ's plans? Why? Yes, because of what's gone before. He's being restored because here is a man who he's had his chance, hasn't he? He had three years to serve Jesus and he made these big claims about how he'd do it better than others. And he messed up totally. Surely he's had his chance. Why should he get another one? And yet here is the Lord Jesus entrusting his sheep to him. Wow. Wow, that's great. Grab hold of that. God giving you a second chance and a third chance. Wow. Grab hold of it. Why else might we expect Peter to be pleased to have this role? I'll give you a clue. I'll read it. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Why grab hold of that? Because he's working. These sheep belong to Christ. They're not any old sheep. They're not the goats. They belong to Christ. They're they're his. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? It's for the Lord. When I was a teacher, I had a work colleague, the PE teacher called Richard. He, as a teenager, had somehow managed to get um, that he helped out at Wimbledon. 
Now, he didn't appear on TV. He wasn't a ball boy. He didn't do anything glamorous. He was fetching and carrying in the changing rooms. That's all he was doing. If a tennis player said, do this, he had to do it. If the tennis player said, hold my towel, he had to hold it. If he said, go and get this, he had to get it. But he seemed really pleased that he had that job because he was doing it for Andre Agassi and Boris Becker. And for those who are too young to know, they were tennis stars in the 1980s. Holding towels, fetching things. Yeah, but who it was for made all the difference. And who this is for makes all the difference. And what will he do for Jesus? Do the role of a what? Shepherd. Now, why does that make a difference? What's the significance of doing the role of a shepherd? Who's he following? Because Jesus is the shepherd. You see, the significance is the role is telling him to be like Jesus. Every role Jesus gives us in his plans will in some way be like him. Every role that Jesus gives us in his plans will in some way be like him. Every act of service he calls us to is in some way calling us to reflect him. Now, that's something worth grabbing hold of. So to have a role in Christ's plans, that's good news. But remember what it's like in practice to be a shepherd. Now, today, I mean, literally today, because it's been such a lovely, sunny day. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Fancy sitting on those lovely fields out in Olverscroft, eating your sandwiches in the sunshine, watching the sheep. And there's not going to be any wolves in Olverscroft. That sounds nice. But I've heard from shepherds who've said sheep may look nice in pictures, but they don't close up. Have you got close up to a sheep? Dirty. And and the, the people who've handled them say, and they're smelly and there's all sorts of grubs in there and they're silly and it's hard work. Being a shepherd is not glamorous. And serving Christ's people today can mean setting out the chairs and mending the toilets and visiting the lonely and preparing yet another children's talk and encouraging the discouraged. And that can be hard work and rebuking people who don't take kindly to being rebuked and cooking a meal. And and on and on we could go with things that are not glamorous. And when it doesn't feel glamorous and when it's so ordinary and when it's even difficult, we have to remind ourselves how Peter must have felt to be told, you've got a role in Christ's plans. Relationship with Jesus means being eager for him, having him probe your sin to deal with it. Being given a role in his plans and then fourthly, lastly, briefly, relationship with Jesus doesn't exempt us from suffering. We move on to verses 18 to 19. It doesn't exempt us from suffering. What an honour to be like Christ. I'm trying to get us to say that. I hope you do say that. What an honour to be like Christ. Would you say that if you were in the crowd watching him drip blood? And heave himself on those nails to gasp another breath on the cross. Would you say, what an honour to be like Christ. Peter would have that honour. I'm going to read you verse 18 from the Christian Standard Bible. It's an American translation. And apart from the Americanisms, it's a really good translation. And it says this. 
This is accurate. When you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you didn't where you don't want to go. Now, you probably had in front of you the word dress, whereas where I read tie. And it's not hard to see how the, the literal word tie in some context means dress. You tie your belt round, you tie your clothes round, sort of tying round. But here I think the Christian standard Bible is right to keep it literally tie. You don't normally stretch out your arms before being dressed. And it seems to be referring to stretching out your arms and someone tying you down onto a cross and then carrying you to the execution spot. And that makes sense of verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So said the man who said, take up your cross and follow me. Peter's very literally going to be tied to a cross and follow Christ. Relationship with Jesus doesn't exempt us from suffering. Now, I know almost nothing about contemporary music, but last week I heard of a very obscure band in the USA called Dirt Poor Robbits. Not well known. And they've got this song about a world in which humanity has managed to throw off all natural constraints and people are free to indulge in whatever pleasure they want. And it has these lines. It says, my kingdom come, my will be done, all trials shunned. I must be loved by everyone. I thought that was good. Not not good, but you know what I mean. I thought it, it sums up really a lot of the attitudes in our society. That's the mentality around us, isn't it? My kingdom come, my will be done, all trials shunned, I must be loved by everyone. That's that's the atmosphere we soak in, and it has soaked in. It, It does get into us. But relationship with Jesus involves turning from that attitude. It means being so eager for Jesus, we say with Paul, I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Eagerness for Jesus doesn't just mean being an exuberant person, doesn't just mean being a Peter personality. It means we have such a high regard for Jesus that we're keen to have a part in his plans. And we want to serve in ways that reflect him, even though there's a cost. There will be things to give up. There will be people who turn away from us. There will be desires and ambitions we have to let go of. But eagerness for Jesus means we say it's worth it for him. Well, there is far more. I hope you know. I'm sure you know there is far more to a relationship with Jesus than I've told you this evening. But I hope this real life story of Peter Meeting the risen Lord on a beach has done enough to persuade you. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. Be eager for him.